to do that. And so, so many ways, such as with Logan and Lacey over the years and, and with several of you now through Peach Valley, we're, we're thankful to have the relationships that we, we do and also at Bandina uh, with some of you as well. And so we're thankful to, to see so many people that we know and be uh, here with you tonight. And so thank you for the opportunity to come and speak to you. As Logan mentioned, we're going to be looking at the church at Colossae. And all right, so that's the, set, the slide coming up there. Let's see if we're. I see it back here, but I don't know if that's the slide that's coming next or if that's the. All right, we see it now. And I'm not advancing it. I don't know if it's a battery issue or what, but. It is, it is on. I did slide that over. And I'm seeing some digital numbers on here. I'm pushing buttons and not getting anything. It's okay. We don't have to have it, but maybe if you want to see it, then you might have to swap out batteries or something. But we'll, we'll just go with it. All right. The Church at Colossae. We were going to talk about some maps and things, and that might have been helpful for you. What we we're going to talk. There it goes. Okay. All right. So. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge geography person, not a huge map guy, but sometimes it's, it's helpful to know where a place is that you're talking about and, and what relation it has to other things. And it's especially helpful tonight for what we're going to talk about because of the problem that Colossae was dealing with, the church at Colossae was dealing with. Um, and knowing what was happening around them may lend some information to us to help us to understand uh, what they were struggling with as a, as a congregation, what they were struggling with as, as individual Christians. And so on the screen, you see a, a soccer referee. I think that's what you call him. I'm more of a football and basketball guy. I'm not really sure. Is it a referee, I'm guessing? Uh, but but you, if there's one thing you know about soccer, it, maybe you don't understand the rules, but at least you're familiar with the, the concept of the red card, right? You know that you don't want a red card, and that usually if you get a red card, it means you don't get to play anymore. You're, or if you get a couple of them, or whatever the rules are, that's, that's not something that you want. And so on the screen there, talking about the red card, we'll, we'll get to it in just a minute, but maybe that kind of piques your interest. What does this have to do with the church at Colossae? But as we said, with regard to where Colossae is located, it's kind of in modern-day southwestern Turkey, okay? And maybe that doesn't mean much to you. Maybe if you were to get on Google Earth, right, you look at a map from an aerial perspective, maybe just a drawing like this, a rendering Maybe, okay, let's just some random place on the map, and what does that mean, and, and how, you know, how do I understand their, their cultural interactions with other people, and, and their trade, sources of trade and income and such. And so as you maybe get on Google Earth, you can even zoom in and see what uh, kind of t terrain and topography they were living around, right? It's, sometimes I think maybe we think about the Bible lands, and, and maybe all we ever think about is, well, Katy and Rosenberg, Texas, where it's just flat and desert is, or maybe just the pictures you've seen of other places like you're out in the desert. And it's not necessarily always the case. And so the reason I bring this up is you see the terrain. Here's a picture of, of maybe where the original city of Colossae was. That's a new city. The, the, the original city of Colossae is not there any longer. But very close by to that city that you see in the picture, you're talking about some daunting, formidable mountains that uh, will cause people to move in different directions. They don't want to go over the mountain to get to the next city. They're going to go around it, right? And so that's going to cause people to travel in certain routes and certain uh, directions. And so we bring that up to say that, that Colossae was on initially a, a trade route that was very important to 
their, their culture, it was very important to their economy. But eventually, uh, not too long after Christ was born, there was, a, there was an earthquake that came and destroyed the city there. And so as a result of that, uh, the, the trade routes ended up uh, going in a different direction. And so you're familiar with the city of Laodicea. And Laodicea ended up picking up some more of that traffic. Uh, and so Colossae became less um, important, less relevant in the, in the trades, uh, in the economies of the area. And so as a result of that, anytime you become less relevant, less important, it might be s- suggested that you try to find ways to make yourself relevant and find ways to make yourself feel important or, or attractive to other people. Another thing that maybe sets Colossae apart from what we're familiar with about the other churches that are written about in the New Testament is that we don't have record of Paul ever having gone there on his missionary journeys. If you look at a map of here's the first missionary journey that Paul went on, all of the missionary journeys would have started here in Antioch of Syria. And you'll recall that his first missionary journey took him into the regions of Galatia, the region of Galatia, into the various cities that were there, Lystra and Iconium and, and Derby. And, and the such, and so th- this is where he establishes uh, some of the first congregations in Asia Minor. And as you read about the Church of Galatia, it's really the churches of Galatia because the, the, the letter that is written there is written to a region, not necessarily to one certain one specific congregation. Here's here's his first missionary journey. Colossae is right over here. He doesn't quite make it over there. On his second missionary journey. He makes his way in this direction and still makes a circle kind of around Colossae. Here's Colossae still in the middle there. And then on the third missionary journey, again, he, he doesn't quite make it to Colossae. He makes it over to Miletus. It's believed that the, uh, the congregation at Colossae was first established perhaps by Epaphras. And that is made reference of uh, by this in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 7. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And so it seems that maybe Paul or someone else sent Epaphras uh, their way, and that's where they learned the gospel. So for two reasons, the church at Colossae maybe is facing some, some struggles, some, some hurdles. Number one, from a cultural and, and city perspective, they're dealing with the fact that they're no longer relevant on a trade route. They're no longer relevant in the economy of the area. And also, as new Christians, they, they never were individuals that got to meet the Apostle Paul. They were, you know, maybe in their minds, they were taught by someone else who was a, was a, a learner from the Apostles that wasn't maybe an Apostle himself. And so maybe they were kind of doubting about their following of Jesus. Is this Jesus really somebody that they need to be following after, is he really all that's cracked up to be? Is he really every, everything that was promised to us and more? And then on top of that, just in a cultural sense, the city itself, as we talked about, might have been trying to find a way to be relevant. And so history teaches us that, that the church at Colossae dealt with what's called Gnosticism. They dealt with the problem of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism really can be boiled down into five core tenets. Five basic elements that, that are taught within this, this school of thought, at least in that t- day and age. And that was that, number one, 
Gnosticism had to do with this idea of secret knowledge, that if you were a Gnostic, you dealt with things or you, you, you had some sort of secret knowledge that no one else had. And so that made you relevant, as we talked about before, right? They're trying to find a way to be relevant. And so these individuals, they're, they're attracted to this maybe because, well, if you had secret knowledge, it meant that you had something special. You, you see this maybe in today's uh, realm in the world that we live in which people are attracted to the things that maybe no one else knows. It makes you feel good about yourself. Maybe in a legitimate uh, educational sense, you, you feel good about yourself because you know someone else that, something else that someone, no one else knows. Or maybe in a conspiratorial sense, right? People kind of like to dabble in conspiracy theories because, well, it makes me feel good that I know that I, I figured this out and no one else has figured it out. And so maybe the secret knowledge kind of is attractive to people to make themselves feel relevant. Number two, asceticism. <clears throat> Excuse me. Asceticism is the severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. You might be more familiar with this, maybe with the, the monks of, of various religions that, that practice uh, depriving themselves of certain things for the sake of, of not indulging in the flesh. And so if you were a Gnostic, you believed maybe not only in a secret knowledge, but maybe, maybe also in the fact that you... Uh, were, were denying yourself of the things that the other people of the world were, de- were indulging in, and so you felt better about yourself because you were able to, to abstain from those things. Then also, number three, another tenet was the tenet of rule-keeping or rituals or ceremonies. Again, very much in a, in a sp- uh, special knowledge kind of way, as we talked about earlier, people that engage in these special rituals or these special ceremonies, it makes themselves feel important, it makes themselves feel special, like they, they're set apart or better than, than everyone else because they get to participate in these things. Even, number four, the worship of angels, and number five, <coughs> reliance on human wisdom. These individuals uh, were very much dedicated to these five core tenets. And so as a result, all five of these led to what would happen in the church, these various Christians that were living at Colossae, they were dealing with these people that because of the Gnostics, they were wondering, is Christ as special? Is Christ as good as? Is Christ better than what these other individuals are suggesting I should follow after? And so you can understand the tension, the tug and pull that these Christians were dealing with in the culture and the the world that they were living in. That is, they were hearing things from these Gnostics that said, well, you're not really spiritual unless you know this or unless you practice this. Whereas They'd been taught that Jesus is all that they needed, that Jesus was sufficient for their salvation, sufficient for their relationship with God. And so you had this tug and pull back and forth that whereas, number one, the secret knowledge, uh, the intellectual exclusivism could have been competing with the, the realization that the gospel was for all people the universality of the gospel in the sense that that Jesus was available and accessible to all people as opposed to the secret special knowledge that some people would have desired. Or the people that indulge themselves in asceticism, (coughs) excuse me, I must have swallowed something earlier. The the people that were interested in asceticism, they they would have been individuals that maybe would have relied more, more upon the physical, the ability to abstain from those things, whereas the most important thing for Christians was that they could know God by simply knowing Christ. The idea that knowledge would perfect you would have warred or waged battle with the fact that you can be perfect 
in Christ. Every man can be perfect in Christ. It's not knowledge that perfects you, but rather Christ that perfects you. And so all these different things, that are the, these Christians that are battling with these Gnostics, they're, they're struggling with whether or not, awesome, somebody has a, a water bottle, for, Rebecca has a water bottle for me here. That is great, thank you. These Gnostics were, were battling, they were struggling to deal with, the Christians were struggling to deal with these Gnostics. And so we get to Colossians chapter number 2, and that's where we're going to be in the, the root of our lesson this evening. Colossians chapter number 2, the issue that these Colossians were dealing with, you're going to see it kind of demonstrate itself through some of these verses. Look first at Colossians chapter 2. In verse number 8, Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8, Paul says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Look at verses 16 through 18 as well. You see that there, he says in verse number 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Read verse 16 through 18 with me. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not yet seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Continue on, look at verses 20 through 23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations, such as do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And so you hear some of those phrases, some of those, those buzzwords that we just talked about that were associated with Gnosticism, you hear those in the verses that we just read. Philosophy, tradition of men, things like worship of angels, things like the indulgence of the flesh, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. And so you hear some of the things that they were warring against that Paul's writing to them for this purpose. Now, what does this have to do with us today, you might ask, right? That's, that's always the big question when we're studying the Bible. How do I make that bridge from that day and age to what I'm dealing with today? We're going to get there. What I first want us to realize is that we all need to recognize the same thing, first and foremost, that the church at Colossae needed to understand and, and realize themselves. And that was, number one, the church at Colossae needed to be reminded that they had full assurance in Christ. They had full assurance in Christ. If you don't believe me, look at what Paul has to say in the verses on the screen here. Look at first chapter 1, verse number 23. He says, you were once alienated in enemies, verse number 21, but now you are made holy, right, through the fact that Jesus has died on your behalf. But continue verse 23. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says, you need to remain steadfast and grounded, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. If you look down, verse number 27, he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is the hope, Christ is the hope of glory. These people that were Gnostics, they would have suggested that there was alternative means by which you could reach this hope, that you could have this hope, but really it's only found in Jesus only found in Jesus. And so 
chapter 1, verse 23, but continue on, chapter 2 and verse number 2. He's writing, so that, right? He's, let's really begin the, the sentence in verse number 1. For I want you to know, right? Pay attention. This is exactly, he's telling us that what, what exactly it is that he wants the church at Colossae to know. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and in Christ. And so they needed to be reminded that they had full assurance in Jesus Christ. But also look at verse number seven. You need to be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. They needed to realize, the church at Colossae and you and I today, need to realize that our salvation is fully dependent upon, totally reliant upon Jesus Christ. That nothing else in this world that is added to Jesus can make us any more saved. If you've already studied the church, the, the church at Galatia this summer, you'll remember that they were the Judaizing teachers that would have said, not only did you need Jesus, but you also needed the old law added to that, some of the elements of the old law. And so Jesus plus fill in the blank equals salvation, which is what the, church, uh, the, the Judaizing teachers would have suggested. It seems that maybe there were some at Colossae that were dealing not only with maybe some Judaizing teachers, but also this dealing with the Gnosticism that, that was to suggest that maybe you needed some special knowledge or a, or a super spirituality that was different than what Jesus brought to you. And so it might be suggested like this. One individual put it this way. You and I need to know this. I know that I know. I know that I know that I'm saved. And I know why that I know that I'm saved. I know that I know that I'm saved, and I know why that I know that I'm saved. And we're going to talk about the answer to that through, the, the, ultimately the answer is Jesus Christ. And we're going to so, show some of those things that Paul unveils through chapter number two. But really, here's the key takeaway that, that, that the church at Colossae really needed to know. They needed to have full assurance in Christ and his powerful workings upon the cross for their salvation and for ours. All right, so that's the big picture. That's the big, the big idea, the big theme. And then he's going to talk about next some things that were causing them to maybe doubt that full assurance. Some things that were robbing them of that full assurance. And that word is a key word we're going to look at here in just a minute. And so, number two, the church at Colossae needed to be warned about those who were minimizing Christ. They were minimizing Christ, saying Christ is not as important as some have made him out to be. Notice uh, chapter 2, verse number 4, we're going to see those who minimize Christ, number 1, are folks that we might call that are like magicians. Now, realize as we go through this, they're all the same individual, they're all the same kind of teaching, but he uses five different words to describe what it was that they were, uh, that th that they were facing, that, that these individuals were doing. And so number 1, look at verse number 4. He says, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, deceive you with persuasive words. Does anybody have a different translation or a different rendering for that word deceive? Delude? Different one? Entice? Is that what you said? Enticing? Any others? Some might say beguile. Some might say trick. Okay. 
And so the idea here is the original word carried with it this, this idea that it was to set two things beside each other to make it appear as though this was the same thing over here as this one, but really this is something completely different. It is to trick, to deceive, to be like a magician that's kind of like pulling the rabbit out of the hat, which we know the rabbit surely didn't fit in that hat. He's doing some sleight of hand. He's performing some trick, right, to deceive you or trick you, to make you think that something is true, but it's not really the truth. And so he's, he's saying to them, listen, you need to realize that these individuals are trying to deceive you or trick you, perform a magic trick before your eyes with persuasive words. He says, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. But then secondly, look out for, number two, the thief. The thief, look at verse number eight. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So number one, we have the magician who was tricking or deceiving, but number two, verse number eight, the word cheat you. Any other renderings, any other translations? Do you see in verse number eight? Take you captive, okay, like a thief might take someone captive. Any other words? Some say spoil you. You think about like a spoil, the spoils of war that you take, right? The idea here is that these, these Gnostics and these people at Colossae were dealing with these people that were suggesting that Christ wasn't enough for them, that he wasn't all that he was cracked up to be, and so they were deceiving them with persuasive words like a magician. They were stealing from them. They were robbing them or cheating them of their salvation, or at least the assurance of their salvation through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And so don't let anyone take you captive don't let anyone rob you of the joy of your salvation that's in Jesus Christ. But then in verse number 16, notice our third individual, as we might call him, that minimized Christ. Let's look at the corrupt judge. Look at verse number 16. Notice the word here. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Don't let anyone judge you. Specifically this idea of, of a judge maybe not so, not so much only the judge that, that maybe be in a courtroom, but someone that's just going to judge you for who you are and look at you <coughs> as though you are someone that, that is, needs to be excluded, that they're going to make a judgment about you. And so he's saying that this individual is a corrupt judge, not someone who sits in a courtroom that is, that is just, but rather a corrupt judge that, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't judge in a correct way, that doesn't judge in an honest and a just way. And so to draw a line or to judge on the basis of right and wrong but in an inappropriate way. But then in verse number 18, we see what we might consider to be the referee or the umpire. Look at verse number 18 with me. Let no one cheat you of your reward. <clears throat> Let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. The word here is that word beguile, as we mentioned earlier, or maybe, is there a different word that someone else has there? Let no one disqualify you. That's going to be a key word that we're going to come back to here in a minute, but, but it's not, you, you kind of see the progression here. 
the magician is, is putting two things up for you to compare, and, and one's true and one's false, but they're making it out to be that they're both the same. And the thief is robbing something from you, stealing the joy from you, the assurance from you of your salvation. The corrupt judge is making a ruling about you and saying, you don't belong unless you do this. The referee or the umpire, they are disqualifying you. Not only are they making a ruling about you, but they are saying, you don't belong. Get out of here. Much like the red card, as we talked about earlier, that's the whole reason that was on the screen to begin with. The, the referee or the umpire was saying, you're disqualified. You're not allowed to play on the field any longer. That's kind of what these Christians were dealing with, with these Gnostics and, and even the Judaizing teachers. They were saying, you're, you don't belong as someone who is spiritual, who's someone who is saved, as someone who belongs in our church. And so that was something that they were dealing with, right? The magician, the thief, the corrupt judge, the referee or the umpire. And then finally, the slave master. Verse number 20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why is though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Not as though they had come up with the regulations themselves, but they had been given them by others that were saying, you must do this, you must do that. You must act a certain way, you must possess a certain knowledge. And so they were being subjected to a certain dogma. That word dogma is where we, we get our word, our English word dogma from the Greek word here, dogmatizo, which is the exact word here that is found in verse number 20, which is to subject yourselves. So you see this idea of, of these people that are Gnostics, he's, he's suggesting they are ensla- being enslaved to them. Not only are they being tricked, not only are they being robbed, not only are they being judged, not only are they being disqualified, but now they are being enslaved to their doctrine, to their dogma. So having said all of that, I want you to look at chapter 2 and verse number 18, that, that verse we read just a moment ago. We said that word was key. What word did we say was key a minute ago? The word disqualify. All right? If you, if you mark in your Bible, this might be something good for you to do, and it may, if it's on the same page or the same opening, this, this is easier. If it's on a different opening like mine, it doesn't really work. But if you, if you see chapter 2, verse number 18, and chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 on the same opening, you might draw a line between those two verses and circle the word qualify in verses, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, particularly verse 12, and the word disqualify in chapter 2, verse number 18. The idea is that Paul had already told them in chapter 1 and verse number 12 that it was through Jesus Christ and God's working, the Father's working through Jesus Christ that he has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Jesus qualified you. You don't need to be qualified by any other set of rules or circumstances. Jesus did it for you. There's nothing else that you need. No one else that you need. But these people that were minimizing Christ They were suggesting that you needed something else. And so they were disqualifying them, not based upon Scripture, not based upon the apostles' teachings, but upon their own doctrines of men. And so Paul's comparison here, the use of that same word is important, or at least the the opposite word, which is one being qualified, the other being disqualified. And it may be that you have a different rendering, but the idea is exactly the same. 
one qualified, that is Jesus qualified, these Gnostics and Judaizing teachers and others, they were trying to disqualify you. Not as though they could do that because that's only up to God. God's the only one who can qualify or disqualify anyone based upon the way perhaps that they're living or the way they're submitted to God. But they were trying to set themselves up, the Gnostics were, as though they could disqualify these individuals. And so that's what these people were living with, struggling with. And so instead, Paul says, listen, here's the answer to this. Verse number 6 of chapter 2, here's the answer. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you've received Christ, so walk in him. Not, verse 8, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to those things, but rather according to Christ. That's the answer. And so as you look through this chapter, you're going to see that Paul gives some opposites to the, to the slave master, to the, the referee, the umpire, the corrupt judge, the thief, the magician. He's going to show how Jesus is sufficient for all things as compared to those individuals. And so they needed to, number three, be grounded in the truth about Christ. Look at verse number seven. So we said the magician, number one, found in verse number four, was trying to deceive them with persuasive words. But notice that in verse number seven, Paul sets Christ up as though he is the foundation. The foundation. Whereas a magician treats you deceptively, he kind of makes you stand on shifting sand. With Jesus, he is a solid foundation, a reliable root system. That word rooted in, in verse number seven is, is the word uh, that we get our English word rhizome from. A rhizome, those of you that are familiar with biology, maybe you're a gardener of some sort, maybe you know the rhizomes, the little parts that come off of, of the, the, the base of a plant where your roots come from in that area, okay? The idea is that Jesus is where we are rooted and built up. It's in him that we are established in him. And so we need to recognize that about Jesus. But then secondly, as we think about it, a contrast with the thief in verse number eight. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Notice verses nine through 15. Jesus is the completer. The completer. Whereas the thief robs something of you, steals something from you. In verses nine through 15, notice what Paul says. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and, verse number 10, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. We won't continue reading the rest of that. The point is that in Jesus Christ, when we are in Christ, we have everything that we need. We're complete. He's done everything that is needed for us to be done. But then as you consider the corrupt judge, the corrupt judge in verse number 16, the individual that was disqualifying them. Notice what Paul says in response. You might say that Jesus is like the Constitution. He says in verse 16, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, talking perhaps about the old law and those that may have been Judaizing teachers saying you needed to maybe continue to observe the Sabbath or continue observing certain dietary restrictions that were from the old law. He says, no, those things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of, is of Christ, that Christ is the foundation, as we talked about earlier, but if we're going to compare it to the, the corrupt judge, the individual that's trying to disqualify you, it might be said that Jesus is like the Constitution, 
That is, he makes up the rules. That he is the rules. He is the, the, the standard by which we are judged. And so even if a corrupt judge says that you are disqualified, Jesus over here, what does he say? Because that's really all that matters. That's really all that matters. And then notice the referee or the umpire in verse number 18. We said that he was somebody that, that would uh, say that you're disqualified, that you're, you're, you're thrown out. Consider what is said in response to, the, to that, the commissioner. Think about Jesus in verse number 19. He is the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So if you think about maybe like in, in uh, the NBA, for example, a referee makes a bad call or a bad ruling, and the commissioner sometimes later on in the week comes out and says, well, really, that was, that was an inappropriate foul call, or that should have counted, that basket should have counted, or whatever. The commissioner is the head of the organization. He has the final say. So it is with Jesus. Jesus is the commissioner of the church, if you will. He's the head of the church. He is that which has the final say. He's the ruler of it. It belongs to him. But then notice finally, the slave master. Remember how we talked about the fact that they were subjecting themselves to regulations? Notice instead in verse number 20 that Jesus is the liberator. He says, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world... Why is though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? In chapter 3, he says, if you were then, number, verse number 1, raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. In other words, those things of the past, those things of the world, those are things that you need to leave behind. You are now focused on spiritual things. And so you can kind of see the, the back and forth here that Paul is saying, don't let these people trick you. Don't let these people deceive you. Don't let these people judge you. Don't let these people disqualify you. Because Jesus, he's all that you need. He completes you. Jesus, he's the foundation. He's that which is not shifting sand, but he is solid and sure. He's the judge, ultimately. He's the one that is the constitution and the commissioner. He's liberated you from all shackles of the philosophies of men and the suggestions of the ways that you, that you should live, the way that they say that you should live. So in response to all that, they needed to be confident in their baptism into Christ. They needed to be confident in their baptism into Christ. Notice in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, particularly begin verse number 12, he says, You are buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. By the way, before we get to verses 13 through 15, those of the religious world, the denominational world that say that that baptism, if you believe that baptism is what saves you, that you're really practicing a works-based salvation, this verse blows that out of the water because really all you're doing in baptism is you're trusting in God to save you in that baptism. Notice what it says. He says, you were raised with him through faith in what? The magical powers of the water? No. Through faith in yourself? No. When you are baptized, you're, you're trusting in the fact that God is going to wash you of your sins, that you're going to come into contact with the, the blood of Jesus, and that you're going to be saved in that moment. It's not as though we believe that, that baptism is more, more important than repentance or confession or, or faith in general, but rather that it's that, that moment that you believe that God is going to save you. It's that point 
and time in which you come into contact with that blood of Jesus to have remission of your sins. And so all of these things lead into verses 13. When you have been baptized, trust in what God did in that moment. He says, when you're raised with him from the dead, verse 13, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them, uh, triumphing over them in it. And so trust in what happened in your baptism. Were you baptized Christian? Yes. Trust in what God did in that moment. Don't think that you need anything else. Yes, you need to live in a faithful way, but you're not going to make yourself any more saved. You're not going to earn yourself salvation any more than you ever were able to earn before. God saved you. Jesus Christ is the one whose blood saved you. And if you just trust in what God does in baptism and what Jesus accomplished on the cross, you can have that full assurance of salvation. Yes, you need to live faithfully. Yes, you need to trust in God. Yes, you need to live as holy as you can. We're going to mess up. We're going to trip up. We're going to fall and stumble, which is going to lead us. Man, did you all hear that thunder? That's, that's a wonderful sound, isn't it? Maybe we, can, maybe we can get some rain. It's going to lead us to, as we said, as we close this evening, the 21st century. How does this play into our lives today? What does this have to do with us? You know, we're not really dealing with Gnostics or Judaizing teachers today, but I, I would submit to you that there are some, some people that, that believe in some sort of secret knowledge or special knowledge, that they believe in some certain things that, that maybe they have figured out more than we do as Christians. Consider this. There are some individuals who minimize Christ today in this way. There are the free thinkers who say, you're not smart enough. By them, I would suggest that there are people today that that makes some pretty persuasive, seemingly persuasive arguments about things like evolution, about things like the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. Medical schools say things like, you're really just nothing more than the physical. There's not anything in you or about you other than neurons firing. And so those of the world suggest that they have some sort of special knowledge that, you know, God didn't create this world. You know, God's, God's not a real entity or being, but rather, and and you don't have a spirit, you're really just nothing but an amoeba walking around. And that's the special knowledge that the world tries to put off to the rest of the world, but you and I realize that in Christ, we're confident. We're confident in our salvation. We're confident in the fact that he allows us to have a relationship with that God, the God of heaven. Also, we can think about the losers. Those who minimize Christ today, we might call them the losers. I know it's not really a word, right? The idea is that there are these people that loose where God has bound, where, where they loose where God has bound. They, they might say, you're not loving enough. You're not loving enough. Maybe to, to borrow a phrase from the day, you're not, you're not woke. You're not woke. Who are you to say that there's only one way to be religious or to follow after God or try to have a relationship with God? Who are you to say that there's only two genders Who are you to say that there's only one scripturally authorized marital union? Things that the world would say that, you know, 
you're not loving enough unless you accept these things. And these are things we're struggling with, we're facing, we're starting to wonder, well, is, is Jesus' way really the right way? Is Jesus' way really the most loving way? Where over here the people of the world are saying, you know, really you should allow this and that. And if you're really loving, you should, th- you should say that this is the right way. Those who minimize Christ today are things like the free thinkers, people like the loosers, people like the guilters, those who say you're not spiritual enough. These might be some of our friends from the denominational world that might suggest things like you're not spiritual enough unless you have the miraculous working of the Spirit within you. And they say that, that you just you don't have enough faith or else the Spirit would come upon you and allow you to, to speak in tongues or work in miracles. And so there are certain people of the religious world that, that would guilt you into feeling like you're not holy enough, that you're not spiritual enough, that you're not uh, enough in love with God. And so those are some of the things we're facing today as well. Not just those that are free thinkers that are maybe anti-religion or anti-God, but those that are in the denominational world that would suggest that you're not spiritual enough unless maybe you have a, a, a spiritual experience of some kind that is outside of the realm of Scripture. He says, don't let anyone judge you. Jesus is the standard. He's the guidepost. Two more and then we'll be done. The hopeless. The hopeless. Maybe these last two are maybe ones that you're maybe more familiar with. Individuals that might suggest that that really you're not ever capable of, of living up to God's standards or pleasing him. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe one day you feel like you sin and you're outside of the light and the next day you start doing good and so you're back inside the light. It's like a light switch on and off, on and off, how you, how you are in a relationship with God based upon how you're living. That's not what God says in his scriptures about our relationship with him. If we walk in the light, 1 John says, chapter 1, verse number 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. There are some that would suggest that you have to be perfect and completely sinless, never ever messing up again in order to have a right relationship with God. And that's not consistent with scripture. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Jesus is the one that qualifies you. And then finally, the binders. The binders, those who say you are not holy enough. That you, whereas the one before that were the loosers, that maybe they loose where God has bound, these are the individuals that bind where God has not bound. That bind where God has not bound. And maybe we start to wonder, am I really in a right relationship with God because I'm not actually meeting all these expectations and the qualifications that these other people are suggesting I need to meet? And as a result, you start to question your salvation. You start to wonder, am I really saved? And as a result, you don't have full assurance in Christ. Here's where we're going to conclude. As we said, connect chapter 2, verse 18 with chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Now connect chapter 2, verse 18 with chapter 3, verse 15. Connect chapter 2, verse 18 with chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. That word rule is the same word that we find in, in verse number 18, or at least the opposite of that. That is, these individuals were allowing them to rule in their lives, but he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Not those individuals. Don't let them rule. Let Christ rule in your life. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. Thanks for your attention this evening.